Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now you wanna get mixed up in the family business? Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 92 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is Robert Vaughn, a bona fide Hollywood legend who is about to return to the silver screen in his first leading role in years. Vaughn, who is now 83 and based in Connecticut, where we sat down for this interview, is best known for playing the skittish veteran Lee, one of seven gunfighters who ride to the rescue of an oppressed village, in the 1960 version of The Magnificent Seven. In fact, he's the last of that film's seven principal actors who's still with us. Over the course of an illustrious career that has spanned more than 60 years, he also received an Oscar nomination for his performance in 1959's The Young Philadelphians. And he racked up a ton of major credits, including 1956's The Ten Commandments, 1968's Bullet, 1974's The Towering Inferno, 1981's SOB, and a host of great parts on television, including and especially that of the Bond-like spy Napoleon Solo on The Man from U.N.C.L.E., which ran from 1964 through 1968 and made him a top star, and President Nixon's chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, on the 1977 miniseries Washington Behind Closed Doors, for which he won an Emmy. His latest film is called Gold Star. It's the low-budget feature debut of the young writer-director-actress Victoria Negri, based on her experience with her much older father after he suffered a debilitating stroke, and it features one of the most complex performances of Vaughn's career, not least because he's wheelchair-bound and unable to communicate with words throughout it. The film will have its world premiere as the opening night screening of the Buffalo International Film Festival on the evening of Friday, October 7th, but I had the privilege of seeing it and sitting down with Vaughn ahead of that. Over the course of our conversation, we talk about how he first developed an interest in acting and decided to move out to Hollywood, whereupon he developed a very close friendship with Natalie Wood, to whom he feels he owes a lot of his early opportunities. We also get into how he won and then lost a part in the 1957 classic The Sweet Smell of Success, and how his breakthrough role instead came two years later in The Young Philadelphians. That film led to The Magnificent Seven, and we discuss what it was like working with Steve McQueen, Yul Brenner, James Coburn, Charles Bronson, Brad Dexter, and Horace Buckholtz on that film, in which he played a character who was later sent up by Gene Wilder in Blazing Saddles. And we get into why he made the move to TV, which was unusual at the time, and how, at the height of his stardom on The Man from U.N.C.L.E., he enrolled in a Ph.D. program at USC, producing a thesis on the Hollywood blacklist that is still studied by scholars to this day. Finally, we talk about what he found special enough about Gold Star 
to convince him to take a chance on a first-time filmmaker in a part unlike any other he's ever played. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. First of all, thank you very much for doing this. We really appreciate it. To begin with, I just want to ask you, as a kid, did you go to the movies a lot? And if you did, were any films or people particular favorites or influences for you? Well, my grandfather loved going to the movies, and he took me to every movie in, on the north side of Minneapolis, which is where I was raised. And I saw all the, the dime dingers, which is what the cost to get in those days, and the plate nights, which you got a, a nice plate if you came to the movies. And yes, I saw a lot of movies as a child, and I saw a lot of Saturday afternoon cartoons, and I even saw some William Powell, Myrna Loy movies, which I, I don't know how I un understood them then, but I, I understand them better now. Right. And when did you first try acting, even just as a horsing around kind of thing? And, and then was there a moment after which you knew that you were an actor? Well, my, my parents were actors. My grandparents were actors on both sides. It was kind of the family business. And uh, I know the first role I played was the troll in the Three Billy Goats Gruff. I was the bad troll under the bridge, and I was uh, in kindergarten at the time. And then the first time I actually appeared professionally on stage, I was 12 in a tent show in Iowa playing a, a Western Union guy. And I, my first line was, telegram for Mr. Edward Mason. And this was in a play. And every night I would come a little further on stage, a little further on stage, until finally I was in the middle of the stage yelling out, telegram for Mr. Edward Mason. And I think at that point, when I heard the applause for, for nothing, I just arrived, I think, I think I'd like to do this for a living. <laughs> and then uh, the first break I had, which kind of cinched it, was Burt Lancaster came to see me in a play in Los Angeles. And after that, he signed me to a contract. Unfortunately, I was drafted. Uh, I was going to appear in, a, in one of his sweet, sweet, sweet smell of success. I was going to be in that movie, but I got drafted. Can I pause you for one second? Because we're gonna, I want to delve into that all. Uh, but first, I want to ask you what it was that initially, I believe in 1951, brought you out to Hollywood in the first place. The weather. <laughs> yeah. I really came to Hollywood because I'd been there in the summer of 1950, and I went to the UCLA campus, and it was just, it was, I think, New Year's Day, and it was 100 degrees on the Rose Bowl floor. Mm -hmm. I thought, this is where I want to live. I happened to be going to live in a place where they made movies, and that's how I got into the movies, by accident, really. Although I always knew I wanted to be an actor. 
And between 1951, when you moved out there, and 1956, 57, when I think you were signed by Lancaster, what were you up to out there? Well, I was trying to get into television and do television movies. I, I belonged to a acting group called the Stage Society, which was kind of an offshoot of the earlier version of the Actors Studio and the Actors Theater, and had people in, like Marilyn Monroe and used to meet behind, beside Schwab's Drug Store. And that was a big meeting place for actors at the time. But I was always, once I got there, I knew I wanted to do that because it was looked like a lot of fun and it paid well when you worked. <laughs> and along the way, before you got into movies, did you adopt sort of a, 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 an acting approach that you could classify or that you could describe? Were you a method actor? Were you some other kind? No, I just I took some advice from an old character man. He said, don't worry about the method. He said, uh, just act, he said. And uh, that's what I did. I tried to be in every play I could possibly be in. If I closed in a small play, I would go to the next play that was available somewhere in Los Angeles. And there were a lot of plays done in a lot of little theaters. And uh, as I said, Burt Lancaster saw me in one of these little theaters in a play in a wonderful part that was originated by Ben Gazar in New York at the Actors Studio. And after that, uh, other than being drafted, I pretty much worked constantly right straight through till the Young Philadelphians. I guess the opening night of, of the play, End as a Man, was, was a very big night for you for a lot of reasons. Can you explain what some of those might have been? Well, the biggest thing was that Lancaster came to see the play and he signed me to his contract, but at the opening night party of End as a Man, I met an actress who uh, b basically changed my life in many ways, and that was Natalie Wood. She was at the opening night, and she invited me to give her a call when she came back in town. She was going to New York to do a television show with Dennis Hopper, and she said, give me a call. Well, the fact that I met her and the fact that I subsequently spent a lot of time with her changed my life dramatically because suddenly I was from nowhere I was on the A-list of all the parties because of Natalie and I, even, I didn't have a car at the time and she had two Thunderbirds, two 1955 Thunderbirds and she put one of them at my availability and she introduced me to Harry Cohen, she introduced me to Jack Warner, she introduced me to everybody in town, Daryl Zanuck and so on and said keep an eye on him, he's going to go places and she was my, in effect my mentor and my my agent and my coach and everything else, and she was only 17 or 18 at the time. Wow. And, and so I think when she came back from that project with Dennis Hopper, by that point you had been signed by Lancaster. Yeah. And can you describe, I think it's, it's interesting for people to note, that they were coming off a big success, and so they were a hot place to be. They were the hottest production company in town. They just won the Oscar for Marty as the best picture of the year, and as a result that opened up all kinds of doors for Bert to do all the pictures that he did after that, including Sweet Smell of Success. Unfortunately, the role that I was going to do was played by Marty Milner because I got drafted and I didn't get to do the role in this picture that's kind of a classic now. It's so well loved and sure. seen so often. And the contract that you signed with them, what were, what were the general parameters? It was called a non-exclusive contract and it paid me $7,500 per movie and I had two movies guaranteed and even if I didn't do the movies I got paid anyway and I got paid when I was in the army for doing these movies I wasn't doing. <laughs> That's not a bad deal, right? No, it was very good. <laughs> so your first actual big screen appearance, I believe, was uncredited but in Cecil B. DeMille's remake of his own The Ten Commandments, right? Yes, I played a, a, a Jew in a sarong, is what it was. <laughs> I was a, and I, I had to come in every morning at six o'clock and in my little sarong, which was a little tiny, strange thing that covered just the middle of me. And then they sprayed me. 
So I, I guess they figured Jews look dark or should look dark, and so I got sprayed every morning. And uh, an interesting thing happened, which I realized later I understood it better. John Derrick, who was the best-looking guy in the history of Hollywood at that time, and I was this, this kid with a sarong on having been sprayed, and he went over to Chico Day, who was DeMille's first AD, and he said, that guy over there, I don't want him anywhere near me. He said, just keep him away, I don't care where he is, but I don't want him near me. So that tells something in itself. I guess. He felt a little threatened. Yeah, threatened by me. It was kind of sarong was having been sprayed. <laughs> a Jew in a sarong been sprayed. <laughs> Didn't you also? There was a second part as well that you played in there, right? Wasn't it? Yeah, I, I also my agent said after he said I got I spent all day getting you this role with this extra being sprayed, and he said, but I even better deal. He said you're going to be in the first chariot right behind you, Brenner, in that scene. He said so you're going to have two parts, and I got paid a hundred dollars a day. I was making $27 a week at Red Arrow Bond and Messenger. So I said, this is a better job than the Bond and Messenger job. And I was indeed in the first chariot right behind Yul Brynner, who I subsequently worked with in The Magnificent Seven. Absolutely. Between this uncredited appearance in Ten Commandments, just getting your feet wet, and then really breaking through in The Young Philadelphians, there was another film that I have to ask you about, another collaboration, because even though I, I gathered from other interviews of yours, you weren't thrilled about the, the movie, it was a collaboration with somebody who is also pretty significant in film history in his own little niche, and that's Roger Corman, who you worked with on Teenage Caveman. But how did that well, didn't start out as Teenage Caveman, right? No. Well, uh, the, the name of the script was Prehistoric World, and it was kind of written in blank verse. It was, it was written by Robert Campbell, who had been nominated the year before for uh, the, the movie about Lon Chaney starring Jimmy Cagney. It was a plea for disarmament, and I thought that was a good thing at the time. I was whatever age I was, I've forgotten. And lo and behold, it was released all over the world as Teenage Caveman, starring me as the Teenage Caveman. It opened on a double bill with Teenage Werewolf starring Michael Landon at the Hawaii Theater. So we had both a, a, a werewolf and a caveman at the Hawaii Theater with Michael and myself. And what was it like working with Roger Corman? Is, was he, uh, he does a very specific kind of movie, right? Well, Roger actually directed that picture. Most of the time he didn't direct. And he had a, a very small budget, obviously. And I was in a sarong once again, <laughs> vying with Dorothy L'Amour, I guess. And uh, he was very easy to work with. I, I, I think it was a 14-day shoot, and I spent about five days in the hospital for various things went wrong, for instance, he, there was a scene where a dog was supposed to jump at me and I was to put my arm up and stop him. And I said to Roger, is that dog, is that a movie dog? He's trained. Oh, yeah. Roger said, absolutely, there's no question. That is a wonderful dog and you know, they have no problem with it. Well, the dog j jumped at me, got a hold of my arm and threw me to the ground, which is in the picture. That was the first hospital stay. Then the second one was I was supposed to run down and bump into a tree and the tree collapsed and I fell into a hole next to the tree. And then the last one was I was supposed to stand on the end of a log and, and then jump into the water and come back up and get on the log again. Well, the, I said, well, is the water clear and been checked over? He said, oh, yeah, Beach Dickerson, who plays a role in the movie called The Boy in the Sinking Earth, and he also operated the sound equipment. He's checked that out. Beach says it's okay. So I jumped off the log and I had a bow and arrow. I, oh, that's the other thing. I invented the bow and arrow in the movie. <laughs> anyway, I jumped off the log. And when I came back to get on the log again, I was slipping around and my feet were all cut up from, it was glass in the water. And this is all at Griffith Park. Now, the, about the, the bow and arrow, you'd see me walking along and I've already got 
a bowl on my shoulder. And then you see me, my shoulder pushes against a long twig that comes out. And I look at it for a second, I look at my bow, and I think there's something here. So I figure out how to put the bow and arrow together. And then the next shot is of a deer, and you see the deer walking along, and I zip the arrow at the deer. And then after you see that, you see me carrying the deer, except it's a stuffed deer, and legs are sticking out like that, and I'm carrying it, having invented, invented the bow and arrow. That was my 14 days with Roger. And that's the, that's the kind of production value one gets with Roger. That's right, yeah. <laughs> okay, so now, leading into the Young Philadelphians, how did you and Paul Newman first meet, and how soon after that did you first hear about the possibility of this part in, in the Young Philadelphians? We both belong to the same health club. Santa Monica Boulevard near Doheny, and that's how I first heard about it. And Paul, who had a contract that he was trying to, and made a deal, if he could do a certain number of pictures, he didn't have to be under contract to Warner Brothers anymore. And Jack Warner said, if you do this picture, this is one of the things. So Paul said, um, I got the lead in the picture, but the best part in the picture is, is your part. And I said, well, they want me to test for it. And he said, well, I'll test with you, which was a very nice thing. I hardly knew the guy. Did test, got the part. And it was the first, I had done a number of B pictures before that. I'd done No Time to Be Young. I'd done a Teenage Caveman, where I played the title role. I had done Unwed Mother, where I did not play the title role. <laughs> so I played a number of things, but this was an A picture with an A cast, particularly with Paul. And that's what got me the Academy Award nomination for my first A picture, which was a big help, needless to say, in getting started. And John Sturgis saw that particular production that movie, and that's how he came to interview me for The Magnificent Seven. I definitely want to cover all of that, but I, the first thing I've got to ask is, what was the screen test that you ended up doing with Paul Newman? Do you remember? It was the one where he comes to visit me in the jail, and I'm very distraught and crying and weeping and carrying on. That was the screen test. And did you feel immediately that you knocked it out of the part, that you were going to get the part? Well, I, I knew I had a good chance of getting it because Paul was doing it with me, and he, he didn't just do it. He really did it full out, just like he did it the rest of the picture. And is it your sense that the fact that he was even interested in doing the screen test with you might have impressed Jack Warner or somebody, right? Because he wouldn't do that with, with just anybody. I probably did impress Jack. I'd already met Jack through Natalie, so uh, fortunately, he was. I guess he was looking out for me anyway. It all worked out yeah. once again. Can we talk about the part of Chet in that film? Because he pops in and out of the film. There's gaps where he's not there, but the scenes where he is there are all pretty memorable, and particularly in, in the sense of the, the contrast that you created, I think, between what he was like before the alleged crime and then how transformed he is when we see him again after he comes back as an alcoholic, essentially, and, all, and, and missing a limb and all those other things. How did you decide to tackle the character? Well, I went down and I tried to spend an overnight in, on Skid Row in Los Angeles. I got frightened about 3 a.m. and decided I didn't want to spend the rest of the night there. But I, I wanted to get a feeling what it was like to actually be uh, an alcoholic in a situation where you, your life was at stake every day. And uh, that helped me a lot. And as far as just the physical difference between how we see the, you know, very polished, I think, in tuxedo and everything mm -hmm. in the beginning, and then we see, you know, more than a five o'clock shadow and everything else yeah. later, do you remember how you, how you decided to approach just the, the physicality of it? Well, I, I just, as I say, I just had the reference of, the, of actually being there. I just let my, I guess I let my beard grow. It's hard to remember, this is 60 years sure. ago. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Now, one of the things that I've kind of learned in my research is that prior to 1945 or so, 
people just any campaigning didn't really exist because the stu- the actors were under contract with the studios and the studios handled it and actors didn't even have their own publicists. But I guess Joan Crawford changed that with Mildred Pierce when she hired Henry Rogers to do her campaign, which ended up working. And after that, it seems like it really took off. So in your autobiography, I, I read that with the Young Philadelphians, you at that time you were working with Jerry Pam, and he was one of the early practitioners of Oscar campaigns. So how did the idea of mounting a campaign come to, come to you guys, and how did you approach it? Well, Jerry said, if you're willing to invest a little money here, he said, I think you're going to get a big return on it because I like to take quarter page ads, he said, and, and do quotes from Mike Connolly and people like that, an old Hollywood reporter guy. So that's, he acquired a number of quotes from various well-known people, and it worked. He got people's attention for, for, a person, for an actor who basically was unknown, went from being unknown to getting a nomination in his first day picture was good thinking on Jerry Pam's part, and I, and I paid for it, and I was happy I paid for it. Yeah, and do you think, so the extent of it really was at that time, because now they go crazy yeah. doing billboards, they do everything, it was pretty much just ads in the trade papers? Pretty much ads in the trade papers, and they were very reasonable by standards today. I mean, they were not, I mean, I think it was 750 for a full page ad, and 250 for a quarter page or something like that. And And was there anything like, you know, personal appearances or meet and greets or anything like that, or was it? No, I didn't, uh, don't recall him doing it. I did interviews with various uh, people, columnists and so yeah. on. I think Army Archer was at that time starting out, and I did one with him, and he was a great pal of mine throughout the years. He was very kind to me and used to, when I was spending time at the Kennedy's house in, in McLean, Virginia, he used to cover everything I ate and everything I did, every touch football game I was in, and every basketball game I was in. It was usually the first, few lines in his column, yeah, and that remained in, in place for quite a few years. Absolutely. So now the nomination happens, that's a very big deal. How did you feel about that, and then how did you, what do you remember of Oscar night itself? I am pretty sure that, that the nomination was terribly, I mean, I'm, I'm certain it was important to me at the time. Now, Oscar night, I... I took my mother and Stella Stevens to the Oscars, and I made a terrible mistake, which I, unfortunately, I don't think it's, I can find the photograph anymore, but Bob Hope was wearing white tie and tails, and George Hamilton was wearing white tie and tails, and I was wearing white tie and tails. The only one supposed to wear them was Bob Hope, <laughs> and I was with Stella Stevens and my mother in a white, and also I came in a white limo, which was unusual. Everything was wrong. I made every mistake I could possibly have made for my debut. And Mike Connolly interviewed me as I was going in, and I said sarcastically, he said, well, what, what, what if you win this tonight, your first time on? I said, well, I said, everything I am or ever will be, I will owe to my angel mother who was with me. And I kind of winked. Well, they didn't get the wink. They just sounded like I was an insane person. <laughs> <laughs> and that uh, was my introduction to the Oscars. I only went the one time to the Oscars, with Stella and mother. And just to unpackage that a little bit, I know it was, if you can talk about the, the reason you were with Stella, it was sort of not uncommon for studios to pair people up, right? Yes, and she was the hot new Marilyn Monroe at the time, so I got paired up with her. And then it must have been very meaningful in hindsight to have gone with your mother because I know that, unfortunately, very sadly, uh, she wasn't around much longer. She was only lived a couple more years, yeah. Yeah, and it ended up being, was it Hugh Griffith that year? Hugh Griffith won. The movie that he was in, Ben Hur, swept the awards and he, he got the Best Supporting Actor award. I see. 
but the real win out of young Philadelphians, I guess, in, in a sense, was that as as you referred earlier, it kind of it was out of that that came the Magnificent Seven. And so, how did you hear about the Magnificent Seven, and and why do you believe that the former made the latter possible? Well, I know that John Sturges saw the Young Philadelphians, and he wanted to. He was casting Magnificent Seven. It was a remake of a Kurosawa Japanese movie, The Seven Samurai. And the only person he had cast was Hugo Brenner, who of course had won the Oscar a few years before for King and I, and he was still riding high on that. And all the people that became quite well known subsequently, Charlie Bronson, Steve McQueen, James Colbert, and myself, that was their first big breakthrough. Well, Steve had done one picture before, never so few with Sinatra. But that was a big breakthrough. And of course the picture, although there was no script for us, we used to get our lines underneath the door at night on onion skin handwritten for what we were going to shoot the next day, and we thought, oh, this picture is going to be just a bomb of all time. Well, not only was it a great success at the box office and continues to be, but after Casablanca, it's the most often shown motion picture on American television. And to what do you attribute its, its popularity and success? Well, it's a good yarn, well told, with a lot of sexy young guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you make movies. Sure. Now, you mentioned that Gil Brenner was on board. Now you come on board. Do you remember how the rest of the how the rest of the seven came together and how you guys got along while you were making this? I think you were all living together except for Brenner, right? Yeah, we all were at the Posada Tacarandas in Cuernavaca. Uh, well, I only can speak about Jim Coburn because after it kind of was agreed that that Sturgis was going to cast me, he, kind of, he said, "Now, do you know any other good young actors in town?" And I said, "Well, that's actually all I do know." Of good young actors, Dennis Hopper, and I went on Corey Allen and mentioned other people like that. Well, I said, what are you looking for, Mr. Sergius? And he said, well, I wanted a kind of like a Gary Cooper type, a kind of a, you know, quiet uh, in the background, but it's a, a real sense of, of presence there on the screen. And I said, well, I go to college, with a, at City College, with a guy named Jimmy Coburn, the sound is perfect, but they got a wonderful deep voice. I said, and he's very much of a presence on stage, I'm sure he'd be. He says, well, he said, well, can you know where to get in touch with him? And I said, well, last thing I heard, Mr. Turgis, he was shacking up in the village with a black chick smoking dope, <laughs> or whatever you said. Maybe it wasn't black chick then. Maybe, maybe some uh, uh, negress or something. I don't know what, you, what was appropriate at the time. So I, he said, can you get in touch with him? I said, I'll try. And I finally got in touch with him. Jim didn't have the money. He borrowed the money from his parents and took a bus out, met Sturgis, got the part, and the rest is Jim Coburn history. Yeah. We remained friends up until his death. I guess one thing I want to ask is just the dynamic. I think you were, in terms of that motel, during the making of this movie, which is dragging on and it's kind of being thrown together like Casablanca was, just day by day you're getting the script. How did you guys keep busy during the lulls? Were you hanging out together? Was Did, did everybody get along? Well, you pretty much stayed by himself. He was, he was living with the woman he married on, eventually on the movie, he moved her on the set, married her on the set. Uh, we, we got along. Uh, I was not a, a pot smoker because of a disastrous experience I had once, which I write about in my book. But we drank a lot of margaritas and ate a lot of Mexican food, and we spent a lot of time in the bathroom. They said Cuernavaca is the Palm Springs of Mexico City. Well, it wasn't the Palm Springs of Mexico City as far as the cast members are concerned, because we pretty much were on the pot when we weren't uh, drinking margaritas and smoking pot. And just in terms of having so many people of one gender, all kind of young rising stars together, was there a lot, was there ego clashing? Did anybody seem to you know any any sort of uh, evidence of 
of competitiveness between the guys? No, we all got along very well. We all had a lot of laughs, and uh, the three other guys were married at the time, and I was not married, so I was only one. But there was not much r romancing with the girls or anything, because there weren't any girls around. Speaking of a couple of Mexican ladies playing small parts, but other than that, I think John Sergius was after one of them, but I can't remember it so long. But was there something, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I thought I remembered something where McQueen was a little bit paranoid about Brenner. Well, he was very paranoid about it. His, his main goal in the picture was to be better than or take the picture away from Brenner. And he almost did, or he may have done it, I don't know. There were three rooms lined up. I was in the middle, Steve was on one side, Charlie Bronson was on the other side. And Steve came to me on two or three mornings in, ro in a row when we first started shooting. Knock at 6 a.m. and knock on the door. Hey, can I come in, man? Come in, what's the problem? He said, he said, do you see uh, Brenner's gun? I said, oh, no, what do you mean? What, what, what about his gun? He said, it's a great big gun. It's got a big white handle. He said, it's going to get all kinds of attention. And I said, well, I suggest you talk to John Sturgis about that. I can't help you out there. That was one example. Then another time, a couple of days later, knock on the door at 6 a.m., and he says, hey, can I, I want to talk to you about something, about Brenner, Brenner's horse. He said, the horse is the biggest horse I've ever seen. It's an elephant. It's not a horse. And I said, well, actually, I said, my horse is bigger than that, and I call my horse Senor Jumbo. Yeah, I don't care what your horse is called. I don't want to hear anything about your horse. Brenner's got a horse. It's too big. He said, well, then you talk to John Sturgis about the horse, not me. I'm an actor. I can't help you out. And that's the way it went on. And there's one other scene, which I think is, it's not always in every cut, but Brenner, we're all standing around, sitting on our horses, standing, the horses are standing. And Brenner takes his hat off, and of course the sun hits his completely bald head and gets a lot of attention. So the moment McQueen saw that, next take, got a hold of the horn of the saddle, went down, filled his hat with water, and poured it over the top of his head. And that was how, how he was competing with Brenner. That's the way it went all the way through. And Brenner was above it all. He never had any reaction to anything. <laughs> you guys had a nickname for him, right? The Pig. The Pig. Why was that? Well, he was in a play in New York called Lute Song. And there was a character man who used to warm up his voice before he um, went on stage. And he would say the words, waffle, baseball, and that would warm up his voice. Well, I had mentioned one day, I said, we were just sitting around one day, and I said, you know, Brenner, I said, is a very attractive man, no question about it, I said, but if you really look at his features, he has a very porcine figure, face, very much like a pig. So that was left alone. Well, one day when Brenner was telling the story for about the 15th time about the thing, he said, waffle, baseball, and I said in the background, oink, and everybody laughed. And Brenner laughed too, not knowing what he was laughing at. And then when he said waffle and baseball in the future, he would throw in an oink also. It's a silly story, but it's the truth. That's funny. So when the movie came out, was it instantly well-received? No, it didn't do, well, it wasn't, it was well-received, but it didn't do big business until it started to get momentum over the time and the years, and as the people in the movie became more well-known in other movies, right. it became uh, a classic, I guess. And movie. just for people who may not have seen it when it came out or, or may need a refresher, can you talk about the character that, that you played? I think he had very, very few lines, but very, very memorable lines, or very memorable part. Yeah, the most, it was, Lee was the name of the character. And um, they said, you go down to Western costume and pick out what you want to wear. So I thought, well, I, well since my character was afraid of gunfighting, I'll be a kind of a dandy. I had a little tie and I had black gloves and so on, and that's what I chose to wear. 
in the film, and it seems to have caught on, and people come up to me today and just and say one-liners from the movie. One of them is, I, here's a scene of me grabbing flies, and then there's a cut to me, and it opens up, and there are two flies in my hand, and I said, there was a time when I could have caught all three. And people would just come up to me and, on the street and say, there was a time when I could have caught all three. And various other lines like from the movie still are remembered and mentioned to me from time to time all over the world. <laughs> Plus, I think, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think the Gene Wilder character in Blazing Saddles may have been a little bit of an homage to your character, right? Uh, it may have been, yes. I don't recall specifically. Yeah, this, sure kid, this guy that can't shoot anymore. He's afraid he can't shoot anymore. But anyway, you did something that was, uh, I think, unusual but becoming more common at the time, not long after Magnificent Seven, which is that, I guess, first of all, for a long time, for for film actors, there was a stigma attached for, for going to do television, right? Lowly, yeah. The television was low. Shouldn't do that. Why was that, do you think? I don't know why, because that's you got a bigger audience and got it very fast. I mean, if you did a television show, it was out in a few weeks as opposed to a few months or years even waiting. Um, and then it became fashionable, and uh, even commercials were done by Warren Olivier at a certain point along the way. Right. And when you did it, I think it was initially... Was it initially for the lieutenant? Was that the first time you went to TV, or had you? Or no, that was the first time. Yeah, the lieutenant was the first uh, television series I did, and that was produced by Norman Felton, who subsequently produced The Man from Uncle. And and also involved Gene Roddenberry, right? Gene Roddenberry, who had done the, the famous uh, Sky, what's it called? Star Trek. Was Star Trek? Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. that one in whatever it was. Yeah. <laughs> Gene Roddenberry produced it. He was an L.A. cop, as a matter of fact. Uh, who became a writer and and wrote a number of shows for Uncle also. That's right. So now it seems like, at least as far as that, as the lieutenant, was that a pleasant experience for you, or were you looking to get out of that and have your own show? Well, that's exactly what I, it wasn't a pleasant experience because I, I was second fiddle to the actor, the very nice guy who played the lieutenant. And that's how it happened. I was filming at Camp Pendleton playing a captain in the Marine Corps, Raymond Rambridge. I remember Mort Saw used to mention that in his acting. Of course, Robert Vaughn played Raymond Rambridge, a really tough guy. Anyway, I, I got a note on the set that, that when I got back to MGM that evening, there'd be a script at the Autogate. And incidentally, the guy at the Autogate's name was Ken Hollywood. <laughs> that was his name. And they said, read the script. Mr. Felton would like to see you tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock in his office to see what you think of it. The name of the script is Solo. So Gary Lockwood, who played the lieutenant, myself, we, we, I got the script, and we went on Sunset Boulevard, and we hung out with a few foozies, and uh, we didn't get home until 9 o'clock in the morning. I mean, about actually about 7 o'clock in the morning. And I hadn't read the script yet. So I read it on the way to the studio at red lights. I would read it a little bit, I read a little bit, read a little bit. And when I got there, I met Mr. Felton, and it was 9 o'clock. He said, what do you think? And I said, well, I, it seems to me it's James Bond for television. He said, yeah, he said, but we don't want to talk about that. <laughs> because the, the author of the James Bond movies, of course, didn't want to be associated with television at the time. So the, I think the most interesting thing out of that little meeting was the fact that he said, now you, you want to do this for sure. I said, yes, absolutely. I said, James Bond on television, you bet I do. He said, all right, get me to New York. It was 12 noon in New York. Uh, Art, he said, Vaughn wants to do it. Okay, thank you. All right. He says, have your agent give me a call and make a deal. Now, of course, 
in more recent times, if you get the lead or get a crack at the lead, it may go on for months while people interview you and talk to you and investigate your background and get film on you from the early days and so on. This all took place in a matter of seconds, literally. My life changed overnight from being a working actor to being a negotiating actor as a result of Uncle. Wow. And again, if somebody maybe hasn't seen it yet or... or uh... <laughs> or doesn't know, can you talk about, what, again, obviously I think you said a very nice bond for television, that is mm -hmm. essentially, but why do you think it clicked so much with, with audiences? Well, because the first two Bond movies had come out and they were enormous successes and it was a formula that took off and went on to, not only continues to today, uh, Bond movies, but it, the, the suave adventurer with a cocktail in one hand and the beautiful girl in the other hand seems to be a formula that endures, and this was television's first crack at it. And the years that you spent on that show, were, were it was a happy time for you? Oh, very happy times. I knew they would end even at the beginning because it was so such a big overnight success and, and so many fans. We, we would go, there hardly any place in the world we would go to that weren't fans waiting at the airport from Hong Kong to Singapore to Finland to London particularly, still playing in London. Now, around that time, while the show was still going on, I believe, you were one of the first, maybe the first, major actor to speak out against the Vietnam War. And I just wonder what, what led you to take that position at a time when it was not as popular as it might have eventually become. And then, did you ever fear that it would jeopardize this career that was really taking off? Well, the, the second part of your question, I didn't bother, it didn't concern me because I wasn't married, I had no responsibility, and I figured I can always get a job acting somewhere and doing something. The first part, I, it was quite by accident, a fellow named Bill Tynan, who was the dialogue director on The Uncle Show, kept bringing my attention to the front page of the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times about what was happening in Southeast Asia. And he said, we're going to be in deep trouble there, he said, because Ho Chi Minh has been planning this war against the French colonials uh, since 1946, he said, and they're not going to leave, and we're going to be there forever. So I, with those words started an investigation of what he was talking about and when I finished my little investigation which was just an actor having a secretary go out and collect stuff I could read I decided that I should say something or do something and coincidentally at that time I got a request to speak in Indianapolis at a JFK uh, LBJ fundraising dinner for the Democratic Party and they expected for the re-election of Lyndon Johnson actually is what it was and they expected me to make that kind of a speech. Well, I didn't. I made a speech opposing the war and saying we should disengage as quickly as possible. Matter of fact, there was a picture which I no longer have. You see a picture of me arriving and all the front, the dais is filled with people, the governors there and they have Governor Brannigan and you name it, and all man from uncle has come here to save the Democratic Party. And then as the speech is over, you see the entire head table is sitting there like this. <laughs> like that, complete. And as a result of that, within a matter of hours, Reuters was on the phone to me to talk about what I had said. I had the only copy of the speech, so uh, nobody knew what I actually said yeah. except me. And it just mushroomed after that, so I was asked to speak at colleges throughout the country and Democratic fundraisers, and of course the American public wisely changed their mind during the course of a few years, about a year and a half actually, from supporting the war to being opposed to the war. And is it correct that, I guess it would have been in 1966, you were sort of sought for uh, the, the California Democratic gubernatorial nomination? Well my, well, my most enthusiastic supporters would photoplay a modern screen. Uh, 
<laughs> and then, of course, it took off from there in the regular press. People may have thought that, but I have never had any desire to. And you would have, if you had, vote against though, Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Against Ronald Reagan. Yeah. And and you were actually, despite having political differences, you were actually pretty, I guess, respectful of, and or at, at, you thought highly of him and new Nancy, right? Nancy was a, was a wealthy girl, graduated from Smith or Vassar, one of those schools. In 1946, she was in the play with a character actress named Zizou Pitts from the old days. And she was in that play, and my mother and stepfather were in that play, and that's where I first met her when I was, wherever I was in 1946, I was, you know, 13 or something like yeah. that. So I next met her when she was married to Governor Reagan, Ron, as she called it. And uh, matter of fact, she, I got a message at MGM one day, would you, I like to have lunch with Nancy Reagan? I go, well, I'm okay, <laughs> sure. And so she said, well, it's very strange that we should meet now after all these years. She said, she said, but I just wanted to tell you how much Ron appreciates your observations about what you said about him in Indianapolis. And I said, I don't know, what did I say in Indianapolis about him? And she said, well, you were asked if you thought he'd have a chance of being governor. And, I, and you said, and she had written it down, she said, I don't really think he should have a chance of being governor. I think he will be the next governor. And he said, and I wouldn't rule him out for the presidency in the subsequent time. She said, thank you very much, Ron. I'll be very happy to hear you said that. And I was right. Yes. Now, another thing that you did that I think was around that time. You've done an was, amazing job of preparing for this. I congratulate you. Thank you. No, it's been, fun to, it's been fun to read up on you. And I guess just sticking to politics for a second, I know another person who you were very close with was, was Bobby Kennedy, right? And that must have been a roller coaster of a relationship. Yes, uh, what happened there was I was at SC in the, in the PhD program, and the head of SC, the president of the time, said Bobby Kennedy and Ethel are coming out here. He's going to make an afternoon remarks at the school. Would you be like to be his host? And I said, Oh, absolutely. And I only met him briefly in 1960 through Jerry Pam, as a matter of fact, when he was national chairman for Jack. So he came to the college in the afternoon, and I met him there, and. Interesting thing he said, this was before I actually personally met him, but there was a big crowd to see him, and there was a crowd to see me. This had coincided. And he was up, the Kennedys did an interesting thing. They, they, they used Lincoln Continental convertibles because the rear was flat, and you could stand there comfortably, and you just get out of the front and get on the stand, and you had a podium. So, so he did that, and I'm standing there as part of the crowd. And he said, what do you think Napoleon Solo would do in a situation like this? And I thought, well, it's interesting that he even would know that. So I said, I guess he would say, uh, jump and everybody for themselves. So after that, uh, after the speech, uh, as I was leaving, Ethel said, are you going to be on the East Coast uh, soon? I said, yeah, I'm going to go to uh, Venice to do a picture with Boris Karloff and Elkie Summer <laughs> called The Venetian, a good duo, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway. I, I, she, I called them when I was on my way, and, and uh, she said, well, come on out for the weekend. And so all the children, there were about seven, uh, seven of them at the time, met me at the airport, at National Airport, which is now Reagan Airport. And when I got to the house in McLean, Virginia, the entire house was covered with Man From U.N.C.L.E. stippers. The entire front of the house was covered with pictures of me and the Man From U.N.C.L.E. banners. and all that. So that's how I actually met Kennedy, was through the children's interest in the show. Yeah. And subsequently got involved with the anti-war movement, which he led, obviously, and which ended in his murder. Maybe it's wrong, but I, that you're skeptical about the official version of what 
happened with his set. Yes, I, I believe, and I believe it because I've spent an enormous amount of time with forensic pathologists and some of the leading ones in the United States and some other places in the world, and there were definitely more than bullets fired than were fired out of Sirhan's gun. No question about that, and the LAPD, I think, would agree with that today. And hence, if there were, then obviously there were two people firing. The interesting thing that came out of my research, which I put into my book, is the fact that there's a woman who I mentioned in the book by name, and I reason I mentioned her by name is because she wanted me to mention her by name, who was a, a girlfriend of Aristotle Onassis. And at one point during their relationship, when they were sitting in Scorpio and his, his ship, whatever it's called, Scorpio, I forgot anyway, he said, she said he was standing behind me and he said, I'm the one who put up the money for Robert Kennedy's assassination, flat out admission. No one ever challenged that from the book, from what she said, or anything. So that's where it stands today. Too many bullets fired, and maybe Onassis was uh, responsible. Wow. Now, you mentioned USC, and I, I think that's the third very unusual thing that, that you were doing at really the height of your TV career, right, with Man From U.N.C.L.E., and here you are doing, at the same time, being outspoken about Vietnam, rallying for Bobby Kennedy, and at the same time going and getting your master's, which is... PhD. A PhD, pardon me, <laughs> and uh, having already gotten your master's, which is just, nobody does that. How did you Well, even... uh, the, my original reason for getting the PhD was I had it always in the back of my mind, if everything falls apart here, I can probably teach in a, in a respectable college somewhere in my later years. But then it became more important to get it because I figured that with these initials behind my name, when I'm speaking somewhere, I'll have a lot more credibility in terms of Vietnam than I would have if I were not Robert, Dr. Robert Vaughan. And I think that was a fair observation. And the subject of your PhD dissertation is very interesting, <laughs> right? Because this is, I'll tell you why, I'm, why I find it particularly interesting afterwards, but I just wonder if you can share what the focus was, which must have taken years of your life to do. Well, it took a lot of, a lot of time. I unfortunately had a secretary and a researcher at the time that I was working on the dissertation. Uh, when you select a dissertation, you usually select it for one of a number of reasons, but the key reason is hopefully your committee will not know too much about what you're writing about, therefore they can't challenge you that much. Well, when I investigated into the background of how much work had really been done on the blacklist, House of Committee on American Activities, effect on the American theater. Now we know what the effect was on radio, we know what the effect was on television, we know what the effect was in those two areas, but nothing had ever been done on has the theater, and particularly Broadway in New York, been affected by the blacklist? Well, I found out that it was not affected. The, the stage equity stood tr strong and did not bow under from the efforts of the blacklisters. And as a result of that, a lot, a lot of actors who couldn't work anywhere in the world could work in the New York theater, or they went to England and worked in London. And I'll just quickly tell you why I, why I find why I was so interested in that is that I've been tracking down. There's only a handful of, of film people who were blacklisted who are still around, oh, uh, you know, and I think Lee Grant was one of them who went to the theater and managed that's part of how she survived. Marsha Hunt may have been another mm -hmm. one. And so these are people, and, and actually the conversation, another story I'm doing this week is in light of the death of Lauren McCall, who, do you remember the committee for the First Amendment? Sure. So and she Bo and, Bogey and her went exactly. to, on the same plane. And yeah. then recanted, which was yeah. devastating to the rest of the committee. So, yeah. um, you know, on the one hand, you want to certainly pay tribute to the great things that, that she was a part of. But uh, yeah. for Marsha Hunt, who's now the last person who was on that trip to Washington, 
she's saying it was it was devastating because that was if they were gonna retract their or their mm-hmm. involvement, then nobody else spoke up again until the blacklist ended. In connection with uh, Betty Bacall, as yeah. she was called, one person's name did not come up in any of the things I've seen, which was Jason Robards. Jason was her second and only other husband. And I knew Jason very well. We worked together on a number of projects, so Julius Caesar and a couple of other things. Played, did one television show where he played Nixon and I played Haldeman called Washington Behind Closed Doors. But the interesting, Jason always referred to her as the Widow Bogart. Now, in 68 was another one of the movies of yours that is going to live on long after all of us are gone, which is Bullet. And I think it may have been one of the earlier ones, that I believe, in which you sort of played a heavy. Yeah, because I had just done my uncle. I was not considered a bad, although I played lots of bad guys before uh, uncle. Yeah, uh, most of, whenever you were the guest star on television, you usually were the bad guy because the leading man was the leading man, and you were the black hat, and they were the white hat. So it was Steve who was his idea. He was producing the picture and starring in it, and he discussed it with various other people. Robert Radio, who was his one of his chief lieutenants during the production years that he had when he was trying to make movies, and and Radio said, "Yeah," he said that when Vaughn plays that one character, you want to slap his face the moment he opens his mouth on screen. He said, "That's what we want for this part," and that's that's how. And the one character meaning the just the, 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 bad guy. the bad the bad guy, yeah, the, whatever. I don't even know sure what his occupation was. And as an actor, is it more fun to play the the hero, the the solo, or the or the bad guy? Well, I think it had redeeming qualities for both. Uh, um, I know a couple times I had lunch with Steve, and we were in a physical situation where the people could look in at us eating. There was a camp for Steve and a camp for me outside the window, you know, waving the hands and carrying on. Steve didn't like the fact there was any camp out there waving for me, but, but he, he, he put up with it because we were friends. Right. Then you go back to TV with The Protectors, which mm-hmm. I read an article I tried going through the archives to kind of prepare for this, and I thought it was very interesting that even though you were a producer on it, in addition to starring in it, you were very honest that, that the first season you felt was no good. Yeah, I, I, I regret that I ever said that because it affected a very nice man who produced the show. And I, I think I may have had a few drinks too many when I made my, <laughs> that I didn't think it was. Well, my complaint was that they spent an enormous amount of money on locations. We, we filmed in all the capitals of Europe, stayed at the George Sank Hotel, at the Excelsior in Rome, uh, limousines everywhere for us. The only thing they didn't spend any money on are scripts. And this was very odd. It was a 28-minute show or something like that, and they could have put a little money into the scripts. The scripts were okay, but they could have been much better. And I complained about it, and I'm sorry that it, I did. And did it eventually improve in your estimation? I don't think it did. <laughs> <laughs> now you can say yeah. it, the, the other, yeah. I mean, Lou Grade, Lord Grade, in England, produced the show. It was just a phenomenal. I mean, everything was so. We had unlimited British Airway tickets back and forth on the weekend. We'd go back to New York for dinner on Saturday night and fly back on Sunday morning and go to work Monday morning in Elstree in London. It was just, it was, it would never, it'll never be that good. It never, well, it never was before or since. And is that where you developed your, I know you have a great fondness for shooting in Europe generally, but particularly London, right? Yeah, I really love London, and I've spent a lot of time there in the last. 20 years, I've been there about 12 years, we just finished a nine-month run on stage uh, doing 12 Angry Men, and I, I'll always go back, and then I went back to Edinburgh to do 
uh, show at the Fringe Festival, which just closed last week. In, again, another one of these articles from the past, in 1972, you told the New York Times, quote, every bit of energy I had from the time I was 20 was devoted toward achieving stardom and success in acting. When I did achieve it in The Man From U.N.C.L.E., I found it a terribly vacant pinnacle. Can you expand, but can you take yourself back to where, why you felt that way? Well, I'm not sure why I said that. <laughs> um, I didn't find it vacant pinnacle. It was too crowded, as a matter of fact, with fans and things right. like that. But I, the whole thing, since I'd grown up in show business, I've been around the good years and lean years with my parents and grandparents and, and stepfather and so on, I knew that this was going to end, and it did end, and it was a wonderful time, and I'm forever happy about having been part of the time. But I never deluded myself that I would be around, at least in that situation, for the rest of my life, which I wasn't, of course. Well, and, and but what you, you've, you haven't, I don't think, ever sort of ceased working. You've just morphed into a, a what maybe, a, I, I, I don't know if this is the way you feel, but like I think a, a great character actor, which is what the best thing that that can happen, I think. And and so I want to bring up a few of these where maybe it was a star or a character actor role, but the other very memorable roles that, that sort of followed the period when you gave that quote. And so to begin with, The Towering Inferno, nominated for Best Picture, one of the big kind of disaster, uh, epic kind of movies of its time. And you're, I guess, for not certainly, you know, I don't know. There's something about you that people like you. That they like you as pres as a president or a senator or yeah. uh, some other kind of leader. So if you're you're either the the terrible guy or the person we'd elect. Yeah. But in this case, as a sort of a doomed senator, was that was that a fun movie? A lot of stars, right? Well, it was so much fun that everybody came to work every day just to talk with everybody else in the cast. And then Fred Astaire and Paul Newman and Faye Dunaway and uh, on and on and on. Bill Holden and so on. And we just. And everybody had their own. They did, Fox only had a couple star dressing rooms, but because they had twelve or fourteen, including George A. Simpson, twelve or fourteen so-called stars, they built separate little houses for each of us, and they were all lined up next to each other. And you had your own um, little fridge and so on. <clears throat> Paul Newman must have had a thousand cans of Coors beer in his. Uh, he never gained a pound. I hated it. <laughs> then you had a chance to kind of send up Hollywood with Blake Edwards in SOB. Yeah, SOB was a much, unfortunately, missed picture by many people because it was a terrific idea. I played the, the head of Paramount Studios, Robert Evans. Yes. Yeah, I played Robert Evans. And the funny thing about because Robert Evans had said to Blake Edwards, after Blake did two or three pictures that didn't make money for Paramount, I uh, said, you'll never work again in this town as long as you live. That was his. And then there was a pause, unless we need you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I just recently interviewed Robert Evans or something, and he's the same crazy uh, character yeah. that he always, it's just almost like he's living in his own mind. Well, I know that he went on, was on very hard times at some point. That's right. And I, I don't know whether this is true or not, but I understand that Jack Nicholson bought, bought the house, that the beautiful house that was on three That's acres right. in the middle of Beverly Hills to keep him afloat. That's right. And part of it had been that the screening room in the back had burned yeah. down. Anyway, you're, you're absolutely right. And then a really big movie, Superman 3, you and Richard Pryor were, were a, a fun team. Yeah, I, I talked about this earlier today. Richard Pryor was the guest star in, in Superman 3. He was the, the, the guest lead. And because of Robin Williams' recent death, I, I tell you this story. Just before we started making Superman 3, 
An extraordinary event occurred in London where a man broke into Buckingham Palace and wound up sitting in the Queen's dressing room, you know, bedroom, while security was trying to find him, and she just engaged him in conversation there. Uh, the Queen and this guy who broke in climbed over the fence to get into the palace, and that was the end of it. But it was a huge story. So Robin came to visit Richard on the set of Superman 3. And the moment he got on the set, he immediately assumed the character of the guy who broke in, and therefore Richard became the Queen Elizabeth. And for one hour, they did an improv about this situation, or probably less than an hour, because at one point Richard Lester said, who was directing Superman 3, this has cost $30,000 so far while you guys have a good time. He said, I can't afford it for you. He says, well, wrap this thing up if you can. And that's how it ended. And, and uh, did you get in on that at all? As, uh, could, were, you impro were you an improviser? No, I just watched and laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. And laughed. Brilliant. So one thing that I know you've done while continuing to act on stage and in all sorts of productions, but I bring this up because I think it's it's probably one of the more, I would imagine, financially savvy things an actor could do, but it's also in some ways, in the same way that going to TV had been stigmatized, this had for a long time been stigmatized, but you've you've been a, like a king of infomercials, right? I mean, you're... I, you're, it seems like you're the first choice for, for anybody. Yeah, William Shatner and I have done very well by yeah. infomercials, yeah. yeah. I did one that's been on for about 20 years now. As yeah. And why, why do you feel that there might be some people who are resistant to, to it? Because it would seem like it's been, been very good for you. I don't know why. I mentioned Laurent Olivier earlier. I, he, did a, a, he was the one that really broke the ice for people that were avoiding doing this. Because once Olivier decided that he would do a commercial, I think it was for the camera, the original first time, whatever the camera was, the Polaroid, Polaroid yeah. yeah. He did that, and everybody else was allowed to then do commercials because Larry had broken the ice. And then, just as, as I guess the most recent series in which you appeared regularly was was it Hustle, which seemed like a lot of fun for you? Yeah, that's, I was with Hustle in London for eight years. It was a story of five drifters who uh, con people out of their money, but they're not really bad people. They give, they give to the poor, like Robin Hood. Right. And so, Looking forward at, at the next things that, I mean, having just come off of 12 Angry Men, it's unbelievable, in nine months you didn't miss a performance. Yeah. Now- It also broke all records at, at the Garrick Theater, in the history of the theater, in terms of box office. Wow, that's amazing. And, and can you tell us a little bit about what you have planned, in, including what you're working on with Victoria Negri? Well, uh, the, Victoria has written a, a very compelling script uh, dealing with her father, and their relationship. That's what we discussed today, and, uh, and I hope we can come to agreement on that because I'm looking forward to it. And that's the only thing, other, like most actors, uh, otherwise I just go home and wait for the phone to ring. Yeah. It's uh, been ringing for a long time, I guess it'll keep ringing. Yeah, and as you, as you kind of look back at, you know, just on an occasion like this where we're talking about a lot of things from, from the past, is there something that you feel proudest of or that you'd most like to be remembered for many years from now when we're all when we're all gone well two things one the thing i enjoyed doing the most was hamlet on stage several times once uh, at pasadena playhouse that was the most thrilling uh, as one i could refer to olivier again who said the, the ultimate goal of all posters and thespians is to play hamlet and i agree that's that's the the, the ball breaker do, do it well the other show that I enjoyed doing most was a 12 and a half hour miniseries called Washington Behind Closed Doors, where Jason Robards played Nixon, I played Haldeman, 
and that's what I got Miami for. And that was a wonderful experience, a lot of great actors. And like the other show with Blake Edwards, all the actors came all the time just to chat with the other actors and watch the scenes being done. And from movies, is there one? Well, I think the most enjoyable movie I did in, was Towering Inferno, just for the, the sheer camaraderie of it, and, the, and Magnificent Seven, and both. Those are the three that seem to be remembered most, and uh, Superman Three. All right, well, thank you so much. Thank for you, Scott. Really you're great. You've done a yeoman job with the questions. <laughs> thank you. Okay. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.